Let's pray together. Father, as we look at these two chapters, we ask again that you would write your word on our hearts, that we might delight and serve the Lord Jesus Christ, in whose name we pray. Amen. Come with me in your imagination for a moment to a tertiary level educational institution somewhere in the Southern Hemisphere, a theological college say. Semester two is drawing to a conclusion. There is a week or so to go to the sharp end of the academic year. Assignments are piling up and the exam block awaits. Imagine the student body is assembled for one of their weekly gatherings. One of the academic staff, a rapidly balding, middle-aged man, rises to address them. A hush descends over the gathering. Some of you, he intones, have been kidding yourselves all semester. You've mastered the art of looking like you're listening while you're watching TikToks, but it's all going to end in tears. And the rest of you, you started the semester diligently. You've only been living in la-la land since the mid-semester break. But really, you're no different. In fact, if you all don't snap out of it, face yourselves and get your act together, it's going to end in disaster. That, in a nutshell, is the cheery message of Hosea chapters 12 and 13. Deceiving ourselves and other people is a really bad idea, and we need to stop. The problem is that, as Hosea makes clear from the start of our passage, that deceit is in our DNA. Look at what Yahweh says about Ephraim from verse 12 of chapter 11. Ephraim has surrounded me with lies and the house of Israel with deceit. Hosea's contemporaries in the 8th century were constantly chasing after Assyria and Egypt and fight anyone or anything other than God. They feed on the wind and pursue the east wind. That's Assyria. We'll meet the east wind again at the end of our passage all day long. They multiply falsehood and violence. They make a covenant with Assyria and they sign trade deals to export olive oil to Egypt. To quote Doug Stewart in his commentary, Ephraim, the alliance maker, was also Ephraim, the idiot. More than that, it was Ephraim, the liar. God makes it really clear that his people can't be trusted. Why not? Because they lie. They lie to him. They lie to other people. They lie to themselves. 12 verse 7 underlies that, underlines that. A merchant is literally a Canaanite in whose hands are false balances he loves to oppress. And those words we heard a moment ago, ah, but I am rich. I find wealth for myself. In all my labors, they can't find any iniquity or sin. In other words, the people of Ephraim are great at persuading themselves that all is well. Doesn't that remind you of the church at Laodicea in Revelation 3, to whom the Lord Jesus himself says, for you say I'm rich, I've prospered, and I need nothing. Not realizing you're wretched, pitiable, poor, blind, and naked. They're kidding themselves. And they're not alone. Slightly unusually, I don't know if you noticed, but in chapter 12, Hosea also has a word for Judah. Now, in the face, on the face of it, things in Judah are much better. 11 verse 12, Judah apparently still walks with God and is faithful to the Holy One. Now, it is just possible 
that the God Hosea writes about here is the old Canaanite God, El, and the holy ones are actually idols, making this an indictment of Judah. But I think on balance, the ESV's got it right. This is a, a genuine commendation of Judah's orthodoxy. It kind of fits with Hosea's 8th century context, where Judah are definitely the more diligent students. But before we get too carried away, look at where 12 verse 2 goes. The Lord has an indictment against Judah and will punish Jacob according to his ways. He will repay him according to his deeds. Actually, all is not well with Judah either. They may have handed their first assignment in on time, but exams are looming. And they have a problem. They have a big problem. They're made of the same stuff as Israel. That means deceit is in their DNA. See, whether we're talking about north or south of the border, they all have a common ancestor, Jacob. And they have him to thank for this DNA. Hosea's summary of Jacob's life from verse 3 is not actually flattering. In the womb, he took his brother by the heel. Before he'd even left his mother, he was a grabber, prepared to do or say pretty much anything to get what he wanted. As an adult, he strove with God. When God sent a messenger to him, that, that's just the word, not an angel particularly, just a messenger at Peniel, Jacob wrestled and sort of won. According to verse 4, God graciously spoke to him at Bethel when Jacob saw heavenly beings making his way up and down to God's throne room. But the problem was, if you remember, that despite his fine words, he forgot all about Yahweh in the ensuing years. Even though God reminded him that he, Yahweh, the God of hosts, Yahweh is his memorial name, his name to be remembered. Jacob, by nature, was a fighter, a twister, a liar who wanted to do things his own way. He was prone to deceiving himself and to deceive other people. And God says that both Ephraim and Judah are displaying exactly the same traits. So Hosea urges Judah in verse 6, So you, by the help of your God, return, come back, hold fast to love and justice, and wait continually for your God. That's actually a beautiful statement, isn't it? In fact, if you want a one-line takeaway to carry into the week from Isaiah 12 and 13 this morning, we could do a lot worse than this. Um, well, actually, this is probably your only option in these chapters. So by the help of your God, return, hold fast to love and justice, and wait continually for your God whether we're from Israel or Judah, whether we're on top of our work or miles behind, whether we voted yes or no, whether we're finishing up at college or have many glorious semesters to go. This is a great way to live. This is the antidote to the deceit that's still in our bloodstream. We need to look to God to help us to, to cleave, to stick to love and justice rather than lies and manipulation. We need to look to God to wait continually for him rather than spiraling off to do our own thing in a thoroughly self-serving, self-deceptive, Jacobite way. Now, of course, if they don't take this warning seriously, the results will be disastrous. 
Verse 9, I am Yahweh your God from the land of Egypt. I will again make you dwell in tents as in the days of the appointed feast. Now, I know that for some of you, going camping is just idyllic. Try camping for 40 years in the Sinai Desert and see if that changes your mind. Camping's great when it's on holiday or at the festival of Sukkoth, shelters or tabernacles. But when it's Sukkoth all the time, the novelty soon wears off. None of those people fleeing Gaza south into the wilderness are saying, oh great, a camping trip. Nor would Israel or Judah. They need to come to their senses, face their persistent behavior and repent. They're deceiving themselves, deceiving others, and even trying to deceive God. Now, there's something here we do need to pause and unpack a bit before we move on. It's the fact that these people all lie. Deception comes naturally to them. It's in their genes. And ultimately, like the people of Ephraim and Judah, the people of Laodicea, we're made of the same stuff. Lying comes easily to us. Now, of course, we have to be careful that we don't overstate this. We are not all as sinful as we could be. It's not that everybody tells lies all the time and so we can't even function. We can't trust anyone. The biblical doctrine of total depravity doesn't mean that we're as bad as we could be, but that no part of us is unaffected by sin. Everything still works, but nothing works quite as it should. Here's how Robert Lethem explains it. Total depravity means there's no human faculty left untouched by sin, even in relative terms. The mind, as well as the emotions and appetites, is biased against God. All of us suffer from spiritual blindness and indifference. And nowhere is that more obvious than when it comes to our perception of ourselves. Ephraim surrounded God with lies and still managed to be complacent. Judas, happily stumbling along, thinking all is well in the world. But as John says, if anyone says he is without sin, he deceives himself and the truth is not in us. I do hope we've got this. We're all prone to deceit, to spin things, to manipulate facts to suit ourselves, to paint ourselves in the best light possible. And we have to be realistic. The chances are our family of origin won't have helped us with this. If you grew up in a family, like I did, which never really dealt with things, then that probably hasn't set you up to face the truth well and then to speak it openly and honestly. If you grew up in a family which was critical and harsh, well, it probably hasn't set you up well to face the truth and speak it openly and honestly. If you grew up in a family where you were relentlessly praised and treasured and defended and never rebuked, then guess what? Probably hasn't set you up very well to face the truth and speak it honestly. And yes, through the gospel, Jesus has brought us into his warm and pure light. He has brought us into, introduced us to the world of truth. Our deceitful muscle memory is still strong. Most of us haven't lost the knack of telling half-truths, quarter-truths. One-eighth, you get the picture, very easily. 
We do well to remember that and ask God to continue to work his truth more and more deeply into the fabric of our thinking and our reactions and our words as we press on with him. Because being people of truth is no small thing. as becomes very clear as Hosea shifts his focus once more firmly to the people of Ephraim. In the rest of chapters 12 and 13, Hosea carefully highlights five signs of self-deception which mark the northern kingdom and in doing so provides a helpful inventory for all of us as we reflect on on how we might avoid following Ephraim and Judah into that particular hole. Here's the first sign that we're deceiving ourselves and probably other people. It's ignoring God. You'll see that from 12 verse 10. God makes it clear that his people have been steadfastly ignoring him for quite some time. I spoke to the prophets. It was I who multiplied visions and through the prophets gave parables. But the net effect of all this prophetic input was apparently, well, zero. Now, verse 11 should probably be emphatic um, rather than conditional. Surely there is iniquity in Gilead and they shall surely come to nothing. In Gilgal, near Jericho, they sacrifice bulls at their amateurish sanctuaries. Their altars altars are like stone apes built on the furrows of a plowed field. This is a long way from what God told them to do in Deuteronomy. They're completely ignoring him. In fact, even Jacob, their forefather, had showed more stickability than they do. Verse 12, when he fled to his uncle Laban's in Genesis 28, Remember, he hung in for 14 years in order to marry Rachel. Jacob fled to the land of Aram, verse 12. There Israel served for a wife, Leah, and then for a wife, Rachel, he guarded sheep, 14 years in total. But even though God had rescued them from Egypt, even though he'd cared for them through Moses, not for 14 years, but 40, verse 13, they've long since switched off when it comes to listening to God. God's verdict in verse 14 It's hard to hear. Ephraim has given bitter provocation, so his Lord will leave his blood guilt on him and will repay him for his disgraceful deeds. Enough is enough. Ephraim has continually ignored God, refusing to listen. They're not even owning what they're doing. They're in denial, deceiving themselves. And God says, okay, I'm going to hand you over to the consequences of your own actions. Now, in my experience, if we're going to slip into self-deceit, if we're going to manage to start believing our own publicity and live by our own narrative, then the main prerequisite is we need to shut God out first because God's never going to buy into our spin. So we need to silence him. We need to ignore him. How do we do that? Well, it actually all comes down to our attitude to God's word. We can, of course, simply stop going to church or stop coming to chapel. The problem with that is that someone might actually notice and pull us up on it. A much safer strategy is simply to stop engaging properly with God's word when we read it ourselves or hear it proclaimed. To slip into critique rather than asking God to correct us or disturb us or refine us. Much easier to give marks out of 10 than to reflect on our attitudes or behavior or character. And sometimes we don't help with that because we give you the tools. 
to give people marks out of 10. But don't use them for that. That's why I think one of the most telling questions to ask each other is simply, what is God teaching you just now? If we can answer that question, and if we can answer it instantly without the telltale pause that says, I'm trying to think up something quickly that will satisfy you, then the chances are you haven't slipped into a world of self-deception where you've effectively silenced God's voice. But if you can't answer the question, it might be time to think about it because that's the first sign of deceit in this section, just ignoring God. And the second, well, you'll not be surprised to know that as we're in Hosea, it's idolatry. Uh, one thing you can't accuse Hosea of is being afraid to repeat himself again and again and again. 13 verse 1, when Ephraim spoke, there was trembling. Now, this is the only place in the Old Testament this word occurs, and no one's really certain what it means. May imply that from the beginning, every time Ephraim opened her mouth, it was so appalling that people shook with horror of what was being said. Despite occupying a prominent place in the nation from the start, this tribe had an appalling record. He was exalted in Israel, big tribe, but he incurred guilt through Baal and died. It's another reference to Numbers 25, the idolatry at Peor that Hosea keeps coming back to. But when it comes to Ephraim, they really only were starting to get warmed up. From the birth of the northern kingdom in the time of Jeroboam after Solomon, it was idol worship all the way. Every passing reign, every new generation takes it to the next level. Verse 2, now they sin more and more make for themselves metal images, idols skillfully made of their silver, all of them the work of craftsmen. Every generation made things a little bit worse. Read through the book of Kings. Ahaz, Ahab, Jehu, Jehoahaz, Jehoahaz, Jeroboam, idolaters, all of them, all the way to Hoshea, whose stupid treachery sparked the Assyrian onslaught, which brought the kingdom to an end shortly after Hosea spoke. Idolatry was the heartbeat of the northern kingdom from beginning to end. That's why Hosea sums up the nation like this. It is said of them, those who offer human sacrifices kiss calves. That's a really odd statement. Just think about it for a second. Normal people sacrifice calves and kiss people. Not these Israelites. They kiss the golden calves set up at Dan and Bethel and sacrifice their children. That's where idolatry leads you. Trust in what you can't in what can't deliver, and the results will be predictably disastrous. Therefore they shall be like the morning mist, or like the dew that goes early away, like the chaff that swirls from the threshing floor, like smoke from a window. As we've seen repeatedly through this book, human beings like us have a deep rooted propensity to worship God's substitutes, to look in the wrong places for satisfaction and security and significance. And if we're to live consistently and authentically for the Lord Jesus, then we really do need to know how and when we're pulled to look to someone or something other than God himself for our happiness. So do you know which idols you are prone to worship? You really should, you know. And if you don't, ask yourself two questions. What stirs up strong emotions in me? 
especially unexpectedly. Secondly, when am I most determined? Think about those two questions and you'll not be far off identifying the idols that threaten to capture our hearts. So what stirs up unexpectedly strong emotions in you? Over the years, I've realized that I tend to react strongly when I've done something wrong, when I've done something to hurt someone and I can't do anything to fix it. It's because I've got a tendency to make control an idol. I know you might find that hard to believe, but, but it's true. I also don't react well when I get to the end of a really busy period and I've just started to relax, to wind down. But someone asks me to do something. Something wells up in me that tells me I'm starting to worship at the altar of comfort. Sometimes I get angry when I think other people aren't working as hard as me or aren't pulling their weight as I bow down before the great God of work. Sometimes I respond sharply or snap when people ask me questions that imply that they're not all that confident that I will handle a delicate situation well. I might as well have carved a large wooden idol with the words R-E-S-P-E-C-T across its forehead and thrown myself down at its feet. So how does it work for you? If you haven't done so ever or recently, you might want to make a little bit of time today to think about this. Write down some answers, some reflections. Ask yourself, when am I most determined? For me, it's often when I'm trying to get a large task finished, yeah, especially like writing something. Oh, there's that respect idol right up there on the shelf with his buddy's work and control again because oh, being on top of things makes me feel so good. Now, from time to time, you may worship some of my idols or may, you may have your own set of beautifully handcrafted gods on your shelf. They come in all shapes and sizes, respectability, integrity, success, security, pleasure, power, intellect. You can worship your children if you have them. You can worship being a good parent. And sometimes these idols have a way of teaming up so that when you think you're worshipping one idol, like work, it turns out that behind that is a bigger one, like security or respect or pleasure. Either way, we need to stop from time to time and take action. We need to sing William Cowper's great hymn, O For a Closer Walk with God to Ourselves Regularly. It contains this verse, The dearest idol I have known, whate'er that idol be, help me to tear it from thy throne and worship only thee. There's, of course, a slight problem there. It's really hard to do that. As Hosea's made it very, very clear, idolatry's pretty compulsive, <laughs> hard to ditch, clings to us. Which is where one of the most remarkable sermons ever preached comes in. In 1819, in the Tron Church, Right in the center of Glasgow, a remarkable man preached a remarkable sermon. His name was Thomas Chalmers, and the sermon was called The Expulsive Power of a New Affection. It was a sermon about idolatry. 
about beating idolatry. Here's what he says. The language is a little flowery, and it is Scottish, but, you know, David or Laura can translate it for you if you want later on. Here's what Chalmers says. It's seldom that any of our bad habits or flaws disappear by a mere process of natural extinction. It's very seldom that this happens through the instrumentality of reasoning or by the force of mental determination. But what cannot be destroyed may be dispossessed. And one taste may be made to give way to another and lose its power entirely as the driving affection of our minds. And so he goes on effectively to tell the story. He says a boy might cease at length to be a slave of his appetites, like desire for food, because it is a more mature taste that has brought it into subordination. The youth stops idolizing sensual pleasure because the idol of wealth has got the ascendancy. But then even the love of money can cease to have mastery over the heart because it's drawn into the world of ideology and politics and it's now dispossessed by a love of power and moral superiority. Then Chambers says this, but there is not one of these transformations in which the heart is left without an object. Its desire for one object might be conquered, but its desire to have some object is unconquerable. The only way to dispossess the heart of an old affection is by the expulsive power of a new one. He says it's not enough to hold out to the world the mirror of its own imperfections. It's not enough to show people the passing character of their enjoyments. It's not enough to speak to the conscience of its follies. Instead, he says, we need to try every legitimate method of finding access to the heart for the love of him who is greater than the world. For it's actually only the love of the Lord Jesus Christ that can wean us off the love of idols. It's the gospel of the Lord Jesus in all his power and beauty. It's the gospel alone that can wean us off idolatry to enable us to face the truth and walk with God. Which takes us to the third sign of deceit in verses 4 to 8. It's ingratitude. Now, there's a sense in which the whole book of Hosea is an expose of the ingratitude of Israel, God's unfaithful wife. We've seen it over and over again. Last week, we saw it in chapter 11. Now, look at 13, verse 4. I am Yahweh, your God, from the land of Egypt. You know no God but me. Besides me, there is no savior, no rescuer. It was I who knew you in the wilderness, the land of drought. But when they grazed, they became full. They were filled. Their heart was lifted up. Therefore, they forgot me. These words are basically a commentary on Deuteronomy 8. Here's what Moses said to them on the edge of the land. Take care lest you forget Yahweh your God. Lest when you've, when you've eaten and are full and have built good houses and live in them, when your herds and flocks multiply silver and gold, all you have is multiplied, then your heart be lifted up and you forget Yahweh who brought you out of the land of Egypt, who led you through the wilderness. Beware lest you say in your heart, my power and the might of my hand have got me all this. Remember the Lord. For if you forget the Lord your God and go after other gods, you will surely perish. 
like the nations that Yahweh makes to perish before you, so you shall perish because you wouldn't obey the voice of God. And that's what happens. God acts against them in just about the most ferocious expression of judgment in the Old Testament. You've got to wait for Jesus' teaching to hear anything more scary than this. 13 verse 7, so I am to them like a lion, like a leopard, I will lurk beside the way. I will fall on them like a bear robbed of her cubs. I'll tear open their breast and there I will devour them like a lion as a wild beast would rip them open. Yahweh the lion whom we met last week doesn't just roar. He devours. I think there are a few things more telling or less attractive than ingratitude. Let's face it, it it annoys all of us when someone's ungrateful, when they refuse to acknowledge some kindness that's been shown, to assume that it's nothing less than we deserve. I don't know if you've noticed, but entitlement isn't exactly an endearing quality. But Ephraim has that in spades. And if we start seeing it in ourselves, it's another telltale sign that we're losing the plot spiritually. You know, it's not really possible to keep a firm grip on the gospel and be smug and ungrateful at the same time. It's only when we've lost sight of Jesus' death in our place and his resurrection to life for us and his immense generosity and pouring his spirit on us and his tender, enduring commitment to walk with us that we can start acting like we have all that and more coming to us as our due. And the problem is that ingratitude is really, really obvious to other people at least. I'm sure this has never happened to you, but have you ever given a gift to someone who clearly doesn't like it? They may have tried to cover it up, but the problem is we know. It's in their eyes. You can smell it when people are saying they're really grateful, but they're just trying to be polite. And when they don't try to be polite and just tell us, it's even more obvious. Now that makes ingratitude a really useful diagnostic for where our hearts are at any given moment. Whether or not we're walking with integrity and honesty before God. Just ask yourself, am I feeling grateful to God? And if not, just take some time to ask why not and ask our Father to soften and warm our hearts. Which takes us to to the fourth thing, 13 verses 9 to 11. You could argue that things really started to go wrong for God's people as a nation when they insisted on having a king like everybody else who could replace Yahweh as the one that led them into battle. When they became independent. After that decisive moment in 1 Samuel 8, the die was cast. Now 250 years later, they're about to pay the price. He destroys you, Israel, 13 verse 9, for you're against me. You're against your helper. Could be referring to Hosea. Or God himself doesn't make much difference. Because the point in verse 10 could hardly be clearer. (laughs) Where now is your king to save you in all your cities? Oh, where are all your rulers? Those of whom you said, give me a king and princes. I gave you a king in my anger and I took him away in my wrath. Their rejection of Yahweh led inexorably to his rejection of them. As the one in whom they trusted led them down the road of destruction at the hands of the Assyrians. That's the problem with independence. It's ultimately an extremely dangerous lie because it always ends badly. 
I actually think that this is why the way in which we pray as individuals and as churches says, to, says so much. It's the single most obvious expression of dependence or independence in our lives. If we think we can live happily, independently from God, without his help, we will not pray. It's that simple. Tell me what your pattern of prayer is, and it'll be pretty obvious the extent to which you're depending on God. Tell me how many people in your church pray and how often, and I think it will be pretty obvious the extent to which we're depending on God together. See, because even legalists who put a huge store in doing the right thing and showing up for stuff like prayer meetings because we should tend to fade after a while when it comes to praying. Because there's only one thing that will keep us doing something that seems so weak and so pointless. Dependence. Desperation. So how dependent? How desperate are you feeling this morning? I hope you're feeling really, really desperate. Honestly, because I think our greatest spiritual need, as Mark hinted at at the beginning, is to accept the fact that we are like little children. Little children depend on other people. I don't know if you've noticed. Little children generally have very little problem in asking all kinds of stuff. You know, even now, one of my daughters, who shall remain nameless, oh, she still is very happy to ask for ice cream for dessert every night. She knows she's not getting it. Doesn't stop her asking. You don't ask, you don't get. I first came across the phrase learned desperation in Paul Miller's little book, A Praying Life. <laughs> but it actually captures the very opposite of living in a state of independence learning that we need God, and so we cry to him. When we're living in learned desperation, we'll not bother trying to deceive ourselves or other people or God. And one more thing, there's one last sign of self-deceit. It's in verses 12 to 14 of chapter 13. Not to put too fine a point on it, it's idiocy. In verse 12, they're actually taking notes on their own sin. They've got a journal. The iniquity of Ephraim is bound up. His sin is kept in store. Could be that God is keeping it under wraps for the moment, keeping a record. But I think it's actually Ephraim who are writing it down. They're so proud of themselves. What is clear is that they're acting like a foolish baby. In this case, in a very unusual image, like a baby who stubbornly refuses to come out of the womb, even though the time is now. The pangs of childbirth come for him, but he is an unwise son. For at the right time, he doesn't present himself at the opening of the womb. He's saying, I'm just staying in here. It's nice and warm. But it's imperiling both the baby's life and that of his mother. But it is what it is. And verse 14 is what it is too. It's very tricky. The ESV translates it like this. I shall ransom them from the power of Sheol. I shall redeem them from death. O oh, death, where are your plagues? O oh, Sheol, where is your sting? Compassion is hidden from my eyes. Now, just forget about 1 Corinthians 15 for a minute, because I think it's better to translate the imperfect as a past here. I did ransom them from Sheol, but no longer. 
I did redeem them from death, but no more. Death, do your worst. Sheol, wreak havoc. Compassion is officially withdrawn. The idiocy of the nation over generations has brought Yahweh to the point where he acts not in compassion, but in judgment. This is where deceiving God and ourselves and other people ends up in utter foolishness, facing judgment and disaster. So the words of 13, 15 and 16 have an air of finality. Though he may flourish among his brothers, the east wind, that's the Assyrians again, the wind of Yahweh shall come, rising from the wilderness. His fountain shall dry up, his spring shall be parched. The wind shall strip his treasury of every precious thing. Samaria, capital city of Israel, shall bear her guilt because she has rebelled against her God. They shall fall by the sword. Their little ones shall be dashed in pieces and their pregnant women ripped open. They have been idiots and they're about to be judged. That's exactly what happened as the Assyrians came through. And for Hosea, it all starts with deceit. This is what we're up against in these chapters. Deceiving ourselves, deceiving other people, deceiving God. That, and the problem is that at one level, it's still an issue for us. Ignoring God and idolatry and ingratitude and a stupid independence and terrible choices are still live options for us. But the great news is that they really don't have to be. Because even though we do need to take these warnings seriously as those who are still made of the same stuff as Hosea's contemporaries, we are also those who have been brought to new life in Christ. Christ's resurrection power has already broken into our world and brought people like us into union with Christ. We've already been changed and there is still so much more to come. The power of sin and death has already been broken. Jesus has flipped the words we just read on their heads, which is what Paul does in 1 Corinthians. 1 Corinthians 15, 51. Behold, I tell you a mystery. We shall not all sleep, but we shall all be changed in the moment, in the twinkling of an eye at the last trumpet. For the trumpet will sound, the dead will be raised imperishable, and we shall be changed. And when the perishable puts on the imperishable, when the mortal puts on immortality, then shall come to pass the saying that is written, death is swallowed up in victory. O oh, death, where is your victory? O oh, death, where is your sting? Yes, the sting of death is sin. The power of sin is the law. But thanks be to God who gives us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. The painful realities of judgment that Hosea is confronting have already been dealt with decisively as Jesus himself has taken that judgment and hold salvation out to us on the other side. And one day, Paul says, he will deal finally and permanently with death and corruption and brokenness. Forgiveness is now possible. Transformation is underway. The completeness of resurrection is ultimately guaranteed and awaits us. So what are we to do in the meantime? 
in the light of what Christ has done and is doing and will do, let's embrace the gospel of Christ once more. For in the words of John, if we say we have no sin, we deceive ourselves and the truth is not in us. But if we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. Let's pray together. <clears throat> Loving Father, we pray you'd hold these chapters up before us as a mirror this morning. We pray that you'd help us to see ourselves. But more than that, we pray that you would help us to see the problem that Jesus has solved. Thank you that there is no dimension of human sinfulness that Jesus has not addressed in his death and resurrection. There is no corner of our lives, no no little sliver of our personalities. There is no neural pathway that is beyond the reach of the Lord Jesus Christ by the Spirit. So we pray that you would work in us and refresh us and reassure us and enable us to walk in the truth with the one who is truth. For we pray in his name. Amen. This recording of QTC Chapel is made possible with the support of our generous financial partners. If you have found this podcast helpful and encouraging, would you please consider partnering with us? For details on how to do this, visit www.qtc.edu.au and click on Support QTC.